so um, first off, I'm glad to be back here with you guys again and just share with you some of the stuff that I've been learning as I've been going through uh, these these uh, next four chapters or the same four chapters that have been taught on last week. So um, I've asked my wife not to start a round of applause at the end of it uh, like she did last time and um, until we get a little more practice and the delivery gets a lot better. But um, So today's, uh, today's teaching is another look at the events of the plagues in Exodus. And like I said, last week Ben Fort used his expert screenwriting abilities and brought to us this drama covering these events from the perspectives of Moses, uh, Aaron, the Egyptians, Israelites, and Pharaoh. And if you missed it like I did, it's either going to be coming up on Netflix soon or you can catch it on the podcast. If you've not podcasted one of the Salt and Lights uh, sermons, you can catch it there. So um, today I'll be covering the same chapters. I'm hopeful that as you hear about these miraculous signs for the second time, that they're going to dive a bit deeper into your heart. And certainly as I've been preparing, it's, it's been really, um, I don't know, it's, it's definitely brought a very different flavor of the plagues and what God was doing in these plagues uh, than just what I saw in the Prince of Egypt. So, yeah, which is my best, you know, best study before. Um, so let's first recall just where we are in this incredible story. So roughly 400 years prior to these events, God had rescued his people using Joseph. Uh, he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. In Egypt, he's falsely accused of a crime and imprisoned. And then it seemed he was forgotten, stuck in bondage forever. And when all hope seemed lost, God demonstrates his power by raising Joseph up to second, second only to Pharaoh and all of Egypt, and then rescues his entire family from famine and death. And then centuries have now passed, and the Israelites multiplied in the land. There's a new king in Egypt, and out of fear, this king has thrown the Israelites into bondage. He's had the children thrown into rivers, and their treatment and slavery has just grown even more severe when Pharaoh is asked by Moses to let God's people go. And like Joseph, um, being seemingly forgotten about and left to rot in, in slavery, um, you know, we've reached the point where even Moses, God's chosen one, is in despair as all hope seems lost that God can actually bring about the rescue that he promised. But we will see again God demonstrate his power in elevating his people in his name. Not just elevated second to Pharaoh like he did for Joseph, but above Pharaoh and above all the gods of Egypt. It's in this greatest moment of need where no one, especially Pharaoh, could have foreseen that an unknown God of an enslaved people would become revealed to the Egyptians and all the nations as the God above all gods. So we've been um, reading the storybook Bible at night, and Ashley interrupted me last night and said, hey, we're actually reading the plagues tonight, because we're flipping through and happened to be in Exodus. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to share, actually, we can go to the slide. There's, in the storybook Bible, they're taking a different position on the plague, so I want to set expectations up front. This is a little different of a perspective than I'm going to offer, um, but it is, a, it is a perspective that some people hold. So it says, all, all the water turned into blood. This is the plague where the Nile turns into blood at God's command. And then all the fish in the river died, and a bad smell came up from the river because of the number of dead fish. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Perhaps they dropped a little red powder into some water to make it look like blood. So 
just one perspective. The next one is on the, the frogs. All these frogs filled the land of Egypt. And it said that the magicians also produced some frogs, but that was only a trick. They could have easily just picked up a few of them, thrown them in their pocket, and then put, you know, and then pretended that they'd made them, thrown them out. So these are some perspectives, but again, I'm setting expectations. I'm, I'm going to take a different position than the author here on the plagues. This teaching won't be focused on sleight of hands or tricks. I think uh, there's more going on here. So what we're diving into today is how God miraculously works throughout these chapters and that this miraculous works are clear signs leading up to the judgment of the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, that God's power over these lesser gods and his nature of keeping his promises to his people should bring us confidence that we too will be redeemed in the exodus to come, our own exodus. And so I'm going to cover how do we know that these plagues are targeting the gods of Egypt? Um, who were these other spiritual powers at work? And how was God's mercy revealed during the destruction of Egypt as these plagues took place? And then finally, what is our hope as there's destruction, as we talked about Ukraine and Russia and all these um, dictators around the world causing destruction in their own world, in their own lands? What's our hope today? So what we find in Exodus 7 through 10 is God is in complete and total control of everything happening in these events. This is clearly the ultimate goal of God, that he is here to rescue his people so that Pharaoh, the Israelites, and all the earth would know his name, that he is the Lord and there is no one like him. No person or spiritual power can compare to the God of the Israelites. And these signs and wonders are a response to God. Um, by God, actually, to, to the question that Pharaoh asked the first time Moses appears before him in chapter 5. It says, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, has said. Release my people so that they may hold a pilgrim feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is this God that I should obey him by releasing Israel? I do not know the Lord, and I will not release Israel. We then go uh, see God respond over and over and over again, 12 or more times throughout the chapters following this with the saying, then you will know I am the Lord, or by this you will know that I am the Lord, or so that you may know that I am the Lord. God's intention is clear for his name to be known and unforgettable. Deuteronomy 4 looks back on these events with a definitive answer to Israel about what God was doing in the Exodus story and the answer to Pharaoh's question, who is, who is this Lord? Who is this God? It says, ask now about the former days, long before your time from the day God created man on the earth, ask from one ends of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Has anything like it ever been heard of? Have there, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of a fire as you have and lived? And has any other God tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing and miraculous signs and wonders? These are the plagues. By war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great and awesome deeds like the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God and beside him there is no other. This is the God revealed in the Exodus story and through these plagues and this is our God. 
So beside him, there's no other. So who were the others? Then God has no equal and no rival, but there were other gods in Egypt being worshipped by Egyptians. Pharaoh himself was considered a god in many ways. And in fact, all societies in the ancient Near East, except for the Hebrews, worshipped multiple gods. To the Israelites, there was only one God who existed in the beginning, creating all things. And you know, the the narrator of the Exodus story actually um, never mentions the specific name of Pharaoh or any of these other gods as you're reading through it. So you'll never see Hapi or Hekek or all these other gods. But you know, but I believe this is on purpose. Uh, it's a great comparison in the stories you're reading through. Yahweh's name, the Lord of the Israelites, is said over and over and over and over again. And not once are any of these other gods even named. But we know that these lesser gods of Egypt are our primary targets of this judgment and these plagues because of other references outside of the plague events or the chapters we're reading. In Exodus 12 and Numbers 33, reflecting on what happened at the culmination of the plagues. It says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. It says, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods in Numbers 33. The God of the Israelites is issuing judgment over the gods of Egypt. These These are being revealed as lesser spiritual beings in comparison to the one true creator God. You know, should, uh, we shouldn't be surprised about this idea of God judging other gods um, because it makes appearances in other parts of the Bible, uh, it, especially parts that involve judgments for very similar reasons to what we see Egypt and their gods being judged for. So Psalm 82, this is God standing amongst uh, a set of lesser gods and issuing judgment. It's kind of a courthouse scene, if you will. And he says, how long will you make unjust legal decisions, or show favoritism to the wicked, defend the cause of the poor and the fatherless, vindicate the oppressed and suffering. These are the Israelites being oppressed and suffering. Rescue the poor and needy, deliver them from the power of the wicked. They neither know nor understand. They stumble around in the dark while all the foundations of the earth crumble. I thought you were gods. All of you are sons of the Most High, yet you will die like mortals. You will fall like all other rulers. And the ending here is just a simple plea and recognition of God's power and authority over these other beings. These spiritual powers, oh, it says, rise up, O God, and execute judgment on the earth. You own all the nations. And so these spiritual powers in Egypt had been turning a blind eye to the oppression of the Israelites. And God is stepping in, as this psalm says, and executing judgment. So another sign that these gods are being targeted in the plagues is seen following the Exodus where the Israelites have just witnessed God's power bringing them out of Egypt and out of slavery. And then God provides Moses the Ten Commandments, the first of which makes this clear. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then another clue in these chapters that we're dealing with spiritual powers is the showdown of staffs that happened right before these plagues begin in Exodus 7. So when Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, they did just as the Lord commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a snake, just as God told him it would. Then Pharaoh also summoned wise men and sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt by their secret arts 
they did the same thing. Each man threw down their staff and it became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed them all up. So there's an undercurrent in this text that we're dealing not just with men here, but men who are connected to some other power and special arts. When we see Aaron's snake eating the other snakes, it serves as a warning at the start of these chapters and foreshadows um, <clears throat> and foreshadows what would occur with each plague to follow, that while some of the magicians may be able to replicate what God does in these signs and wonders, God will ultimately be the only one standing in the end. And there's actually a little bit of subtle humor being here, being placed here. Early on in the plagues, the magicians actually are able to replicate some of the plagues, like turning the water, you know, into blood or just like we saw creating more frogs. Um, But it's actually somewhat humorous that when Pharaoh asks them to replicate, they're replicating, creating more problems. They're adding to the problem with more frogs or creating blood out of water as opposed to, you know, turning it back, getting rid of the frogs or turning the water back into something that could be drank. So this is a they don't even attempt to do that. So who so let's turn out, you know, who's who were the gods of Egypt? Each of the plagues targeted specific deities who were known at that time. To us, there's no clear connection. We read the story and you can't quite tell, like, what's going on here. But to the Israelites, who had just spent 400 years or so living among the Egyptians, it would have been crystal clear which God should the Egyptians believe would be in control as these things are happening in their land. And also unnerving to the Egyptians, seeing that their gods, who they worshipped and paid tribute to, were powerless against what God was doing in in their own country. And so they were powerless to fight back against the God of the Israelites. Just to offer a few examples, I won't name all the names and such, but and there's some debate about which exact gods line up with the plagues. But there was a fertility goddess, which was pictured as having the head of a frog, um, but God creating numerous frogs everywhere, uncontrollable numbers of frogs, it was clear that the Lord was the Lord was able to command frogs in this second plague and not be controlled or constrained. There were gods associated with bulls, and a goddess of love had the head of a cow. Yet none of these gods could hold back the plague that God sends on the livestock of Egypt. The sky goddess would have you would have thought would have been strong enough to prevent the plague of hail or stop the uh, locusts that had, were brought in with an east wind. And then the sun god, which rises every day to bring light to the worshipers in Egypt, is held back when God brings three days of absolute darkness on the ninth plague. So God shows his absolute control over Egypt's life and its deities. And the plagues dismantle the physical and religious foundations of Egypt. There was no question at the conclusion of these plagues, who is the one true God sovereign over all things? over the operation of the universe and whose will would come to pass in heaven and upon the earth. And I'd like to point out one other compelling aspect of what occurs in these chapters. Um, God's mercy in the midst of all of this decreation occurring in Egypt. So the wonders of God were acts of decreation where Egypt goes from apparent order under Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And after the plagues is in utter ruin especially in comparison to the land that God set apart 
to provide protection for his people, the area of Goshen within Egypt. So the plagues, each of them are echoing back into God's own creative activity, and the plagues decreate, they disorder what God has ordered. And they take apart what God has brought together. They take a habitable world in Egypt and make it uninhabitable. So on the first pages of the Bible, there's darkness and chaos. Everything is considered wild and waste. And God then creates and brings order out of this chaos. He fills the world with light and then creates fruitful land and vegetation and fills the sea with fish. He creates animals on the land and then places humans in the garden. But in the plagues, God has shown as unraveling or reversing all of this creation back to its dark and chaotic state as a consequence of Pharaoh's refusal to recognize that, you know, who God is and submit to his word. So we see that the fish God created to swarm in the waters die when the Nile is turned to blood. Living creatures created to live on the land and the vegetation produced by the land we see in the plagues of the hail and the locusts that everything that grows in the land and the cattle and the animals were destroyed in Egypt. And then God creates the lights in the sky to separate day from night in the beginning. And we see three days of absolute darkness when the sun does not shine in Egypt, ultimately leading to the final plague of death and reversing the life of humankind God brought forth to rule within his creation. So in the midst of this decreation, it says that God begins to carve out the land of Goshen. And this is where God's people reside. And there, was, and there we see a land inside of Egypt that's falling apart, protected from the effects of the plagues. So in Exodus 8, 9, and 10, as each of these plagues are occurring, you see this. But on that day, I will mark off the land of Goshen where my people are staying so that no swarms of flies will be there. They may know that that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of this land, but the Lord will distinguish between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, and nothing will die that the Israelites have. And so Moses extended his hand towards heaven, and there was absolute darkness throughout the land of Egypt for three days. No one could see another person. No one could rise from his place for three days, but the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. I had a real experience with this darkness uh, recently. We, I had to go out into the garage and find the um, sprinkler box because my sprinkler's been off for a little while, so I turned them on. And um, while I was out there, it's nighttime, everything goes dark in the garage. So I'm in the back corner of the garage, and it's night. Again, all the lights are off. And we've got four boys. We don't park our car in the garage. It's just filled with stuff dangerous stuff to like go through and walk. And so I was paralyzed for a second. I was like, uh, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I wave to the sensors to try to see if that'll turn it on. Nothing turns on. I see the little red light of the, of the button in the distance, but, um, I nearly, it was the slowest I've ever moved in my life to prevent me from falling. Um, and it was disorienting. So I just, you know, all of that. So At the culmination of the plagues, back to the story. The culmination of the plagues, we see a stark contrast between the land of God's people and the land of Egypt. In one, there remains order and livestock and vegetation and light. And in the other, we see disorder and darkness and a wasteland. 
And the signs and wonders sent upon Egypt by God make clear that the Lord of the Israelites is greater than Pharaoh and all the gods worshipped in Egypt and ultimately represented the Lord's judgment directly against those gods while also providing mercy for those who call upon his name. And that also, from how I would read it, that also includes non-Israelites. The land of Goshen that was protected from the plagues was not off limits. There was no barrier for Egyptians or other people in that nation to come into Goshen and reap the benefits of of what God was doing in protecting them from the plagues. Um, We learn later in Exodus as they're they're leaving um, and God has freed them, a mixed multitude leave with the Israelites when they're finally released. And perhaps that some non-Israelites chose then to leave Pharaoh and follow the one true God after seeing these signs and wonders. In Exodus 12, it says, The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot, plus their dependents. And next it says, A mixed multitude also went up with them, and flocks and herds, a very large number of cattle. So this, what I would read, is ethnically diverse crowd left Egypt. And this may provide us with a glimpse or hint towards God's promise to Abraham that it's through his chosen people and his work that other nations will find blessing. So in sending the signs and wonders upon Egypt, God was delivering this direct attack on the gods, allowing for Egypt's decreation and reversing the goodness that God had established at his creation as an act of judgment, sending a message that God is above and incomparable to anything else. What he wills to do, he can bring it about. So what about the new exodus, our exodus, that we celebrate and the spiritual powers today? We still see spiritual powers at work in the world, exercising their power to oppress the weak, favor the wicked, act with injustice, and bring about suffering. And we even see this now with the events we talked about, Russia, Ukraine, other dictators. So where do we put our hope as this decreation occurs? Ephesians 1, 2, and 6, just pull together a couple relevant passages here. What is, so you're going to know that what is the incomparable greatness of his power towards us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his immense strength, like was shown in Egypt. This power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion every name that is named. And you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So spiritual power is still real today. But what does Colossians say as well? In one chapters 1 and 2, it says, God transfers us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his son, into this beautiful land of Goshen, if you will, in the midst of the chaos. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross, just as he did with these gods in Egypt. So Jesus' resurrection provides the greatest sign that God keeps his promises, that he still has power over other powers. And we, 
And, and he will fulfill the ultimate restoration of the whole earth to himself as he promised that he would do. So God's new exodus is coming. We have this promise today that, that we will experience our own exodus just as the Israelites took back or look back on Passover as their moment where God, the God of the universe, displayed his power over all things in heaven and earth. We look back on the cross and the power of God to raise our Savior from the dead, a sign that acts as a promise for us of our own exodus to come. In Exodus 15, the Israelites were told this. It was a promise made to those people uh, about who God is. It says, by your loyal love, you will lead the people you redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to the holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place you made for your residence. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, we've got this similar promise made to us and all those who follow Jesus that there will be a new creation where darkness and chaos are nowhere to be seen. It says, look, God's dwelling place is with his people. This will be his people and God will be with them. He will be their God, as he told the Israelites. On each side of the river is the tree of life producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations, all of those nations to be blessed. And there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship him. Night will be no more. There will be no need for light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. This is likely that same light that was in the land of Goshen as the sun was not even present in Egypt at that time. That same light we'll we'll see in the new creation. So God owns the whole earth. He'll redeem everything in it and fill the land with blessing. And as followers of Jesus, we will take part in this new creation. Our exodus will follow that of our Savior and his exodus in the resurrection. So... um, So I want to celebrate these truths with the taking of bread and wine. Um, So if you've got your communion cups, get that ready. So remember that as Joseph was stranded in prison in Egypt, um, is similar to where we began the story today with the Israelites and Moses losing faith in God as their suffering became more severe. And in the New Testament, we see again the same pattern as the disciples were coming to terms that their source of salvation was lying dead in a tomb. And this is a pattern of our hearts which succumbs to despair so quickly. But God is faithful. He's incomparable. There's no one like him. And he is on a mission which will not be stopped by any powers on this earth as he's above them all. So let's take the bread now, remembering his sacrifice and the power of God over even death. And the wine. So this is to the hope and trust we have in his promises. Even as things are unraveling, even when things grow more hopeless and severe, Um, Our God is a promise keeper, and he's got the power to accomplish his will. Joseph Joseph was forgotten, and Moses was in despair, and the disciples felt defeated. 
Um, but God, in all those cases, held to his promise and revealed himself as trustworthy. So let's take the wine. So let me pray for us. On that note, we'll begin worship. God, I, um, I pray, Lord, that um, you would just magnify who you are in our hearts, God, that you would, in my heart, Lord, that these things that feel so far away, that feel um, thousands of years or, or um, hundreds and thousands of years, God, back, I, I just, I, I, I want them to become real, Lord. I know that we are facing our own struggle against these spiritual powers, God, and I pray that you would allow us to rest in you and rest in your um, goodness, your strength, as it says, God, um, that it's not on our power that we struggle against these things, Lord, but we, we rest in you. It's not the Israelites or Moses or Aaron that did these things in Egypt, Lord. It was all you. You said it was your hand that took them out, that you took one nation out of another, God, and we just pray that we would rest in that knowing, um, Lord, and just that our hope and our faith would be in the coming back of your son, Jesus, Lord, that this, um, all the pain in this world, Lord, all the decreation that's occurring or in our midst, God, that it would be no more, Lord, and that we have so much to look forward to, Lord, as you come back and we pray, God, that you would come quickly. Um, God, thank you for your son, Jesus, uh, his death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection, which we celebrate soon. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray.